Welcome, and thanks for joining the Closed End Fund Association for another discussion. Today, we will hear from an industry expert who shares insight on a timely issue affecting the Closed End Fund space. Hi, I'm Libby Haster, Content Specialist at the Closed End Fund Association. This morning, we're speaking to Larry Antonatos, David Christensen, and Steve Burton. Before we get started, I'd like to briefly introduce today's speakers so listeners can appreciate what a great group of thought leaders we have on today's call. Larry Antonatos comes to us from Brookfield's Public Securities Group, where he serves as Managing Director and Portfolio Manager on the Real Asset Solutions team. Also on the call is ASA Gold and Precious Metals Limited's David Christensen, who serves as President, Chief Executive Officer, and Chief Investment Officer. And no stranger to the CIFA podcast is our last speaker, Steve Burton, Principal, Co-CIO, and Senior Global Portfolio Manager with CBRE Clarion Securities. Representing such different sectors of the investing spectrum, you may wonder what brought us all here. And though each speaker offers a highly technical area of expertise, we've come together for a discussion on special sectors in the areas of infrastructure, natural resources, and real estate. Now, market correction, it's, it's a phrase that sends the bulls running the last two weeks, causing a significant stir in traditional income investments. But with plenty of optimistic market outlooks countering news headlines, this discussion comes at a good time. Um, and that time is to remind investors why it's important to consider harnessing specialty sectors for portfolio diversification. Now, without further ado, I'd like to turn things over to Steve Burton of CBRE. Steve, when we last spoke about eight months ago, you discussed REIT performance in periods of rising interest rates. Since then, we've had significant tax reform, new leadership at the Federal Reserve, and a 10-year Treasury yield nearing 3%. Can you update us on how you see real estate performing in this environment, um, especially with the expectation of further rate increases? Steve? Yeah, there's no shortage of uh, macro news and political news and drama kind of top down for any investment class. Um, You know, indeed, the real estate stocks, I think, perhaps unfairly by many, kind of get lumped in with assets which uh, are perceived to be interest rate sensitive. So they can, you know, they're they're perceived to act a a little bit like bonds uh, in an environment where rates are going up. But we've studied past time periods when the Fed's raising, when the yield curve shifting up, when long-term rates have moved up, and researched it with the conclusion that, that real estate stocks actually perform positively through those time periods and thereafter. Indeed, if you look at how real estate stocks did, you know, 2017, the Fed raises multiple times. You know, U.S. REITs had a subpar year, but they were still up 5.1%. A global strategy, which we embraced, was up twice that. The uh, stocks in the Asia-Pacific region were up nearly 30%. Europe, up, or the Asia-Pacific was up nearly 20%. Europe, up nearly 30%. So this, this is an asset class that ultimately responds to the bottom-up trends. And um, as, as we all know on this call, the kind of the recent macro news is the global growth is increasingly synchronized, and and the outlook from an ultimate demand point for real estate is good. And that's, in fact, why rates are going up. It's because things are getting better, not worse. And if you dig into it and ask yourself, okay, why is this true? It's got a lot to do with the duration of the cash flows coming from the real estate companies. The cash flows come from the leases. The leases tend to be 
five year, seven year, you know, even longer in duration. So there's there's a stability to those cash flows that endures through these rate rising cycles. And if you layer on that the solid balance sheets of the companies, a lot of these companies have been around a long time, you know, average LTV, 30% range. The companies are actually well positioned to, to benefit from improving economic conditions. The tax, you know, I, I paused because I, I, you know, the, the tax law that came out in the U.S. is also a little silver lining that a lot of people don't notice out there. You know, REIT dividends, since they pass through to the, the ultimate shareholder, are, are taxed as ordinary income. But with the new tax law, the REITs are deemed to be passed through entities. So although the top marginal rate for the individual investors come down to 37%, investors in U.S. REITs get to deduct 20% off of that. So the top marginal rate for REIT dividends actually moves down to 29.6%. So that's that's a little silver lining out there for owners of, of U.S. REITs, which I think is, has also gone underappreciated thus far. So net, the stocks have gone up despite rates going up and despite rates prospectively going up. Now, David, if we could uh, turn things over to you, Steve had touched on this, but the U.S. is experiencing a strengthening economy and rising interest rates. So with this in mind, we're likely to experience a growing national debt, and there are indications that inflation may pick up. So what macroeconomic factors have the most impact on your outlook for gold and precious metals? Thank you, Livian. That's obviously a very timely question, given what's going on in the marketplace today. Historically, the kind of Goldilocks economy, the overused term that we hear a lot, is one that hasn't lasted for very long. And recent data from the Federal Reserve Bank in Cleveland indicated that the median CPI rose at an annualized rate now, 4.2% in January, which was quite a surprise to Wall Street. This was the single largest one-month increase in inflation since March of 2005. Wall Street's new concern has been for rising inflation, the potential of the Fed to increase rates now at a faster clip than they had been expecting, and a weakening dollar have all set the stage for potentially higher gold prices over the coming year as weaker dollars, higher inflation rates, and rising debt levels have all positively impacted gold in the the past. We expect that to continue into the future. In all, it uh, would seem to be a good time to look at things like gold and real estate and hard assets, if you will, because of the potential for these things to occur going forward. And David, taking a closer look at gold, we know, you know, it's been trading at a range of $1,200 to $1,400 per ounce. Are these favorable levels for exploration of mining companies, and do you expect increased investment in production? Also, do you see better value in other metals? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I started my career, gold was $250 an ounce, and 450 would have seemed like an absurdly high level, and everybody would be profitable. Today, at a range of $1,200 to $1,400 an ounce, the mining industry is largely marginal in terms of its ability to generate cash flow and earnings from a gold mining company. Prices today are simply just not quite high enough to incentivize a gold producer to develop a new mining project. And as a consequence, we're beginning to see mining projects age and deteriorate with the ongoing time, as most of these companies only last about 10 years in terms of the reserves. Lower grades throughout the industry, lower recoveries because of the processing of more sulfitic ores, have all negatively affected production rates. What we have seen, however, is there's been a significant improvement in capital allocation throughout the mining industry, and especially in the gold industry, meaning that the mines that they are building are of a higher quality and are generating 
a more positive return than we have seen in the past. Moreover, over the last couple of years, the mining companies, both in copper and in gold, have made a significant improvement in their balance sheets throughout the sector. And as a result, while gold production is actually declining globally in terms of output, we're starting to see improvements in cash flow, dividends, and earnings throughout the industry, which we think that could translate into better valuations for the gold mining companies going forward. At the same time, ASA has been investing in a number of newer, higher-quality single-asset companies, which are growing and are new projects that we believe will promise to increase in value over time or potentially be acquired by these more senior companies as they need to supplement their own production and reserves. Uh, Libby, as for the other metals, ASA is not traditionally a gold fund, but has also invested in copper, palladium, platinum, diamonds, and other strategic and precious metals over time. Palladium has been a very good area for ASA over the last couple of years, and the loss of one of our significant positions in the portfolio due to an acquisition last year resulted in a nice capital gain for our shareholders. But the company also presently has a relatively small position in diamonds of about 4.5% of the portfolio, and we are also actively pursuing a number of copper projects around the world for their individual uh, asset qualities, not just for the positive sector momentum in copper. Thanks, David. Now, Larry, if we could kind of turn things over to you and take a look at real assets. In recent weeks, investors have been reminded that market volatility is, again, something that we've got to be aware of. How do the characteristics of real assets fit in a long-term investor's portfolio as they try to navigate uh, this market volatility? Larry? Many people think of real assets, first, real estate, second, commodities, such as metals, and we've just heard about those two. At Brookfield, we also invest in infrastructure equities. We invest in high-yield bonds of real asset companies, uh, infrastructure, real estate, and natural resources companies. And we also have investments in securitized credit, residential mortgage-backed securities and commercial mortgage-backed securities. I want to highlight just for a moment two of those asset classes that I think have some interesting characteristics that can benefit total portfolio volatility. Uh, First, if we think about infrastructure, infrastructure equities tend to be a low volatility asset class. They offer historically attractive volatility and drawdown metrics with approximately 75% of the volatility of global equities and 75% of the drawdown of global equities. This ability is driven by the supply, demand, and pricing fundamentals of infrastructure which are unlike most other businesses. First, let's talk about supply. The supply of infrastructure assets is constrained, frequently constrained by regulation. And many infrastructure assets, therefore, are monopolies or semi-monopolies. That's a terrific place to be in a monopoly or semi-monopoly position. Second, thinking about demand. The demand for essential services provided by infrastructure assets tends to be very steady. Whether the economy is strong or weak, for example, we all use energy infrastructure when we turn on the lights every morning, water infrastructure when we brush our teeth every morning, and communications infrastructure when we check our iPhone first thing in the morning and 100 times a day. Transportation infrastructure, which is the fourth major group of the infrastructure asset class and includes airports, seaports, and toll roads, does have GDP sensitivity and tends to perform better in times when GDP is accelerating. Now, if you think about most investments, supply and demand will intersect to determine pricing. 
That's not necessarily the case with infrastructure. The pricing of infrastructure services is frequently regulated rather than driven by supply and demand. When the government allows a monopoly, the government generally regulates price. The good news is that frequently this regulation is tied to inflation, providing inflationary growth in revenues. So you have an asset class that has very attractive volatility characteristics and very attractive drawdown characteristics relative to the broad market, and it's driven by the fundamentals of a business. Secondly, if I talk about securitized credit, uh, what's really appealing about securitized credit is its low correlation to equities and its low correlation to fixed income. So by adding securitized credit to your portfolio, uh, mortgage-backed securities have a correlation to global equities of 0.4 and a correlation to global fixed income of 0.2. That low correlation, as an addition to your portfolio, can reduce overall portfolio volatility. And these bonds provide very attractive yield and very attractive total return. Thanks, Larry. Um, now, Steve, your perspective is reasonably unique among closed-end funds in that you invest in global real estate markets. What advantages do you see in managing a global real estate portfolio, and where are you finding the best opportunities today? Yeah, last year, 2017, as, as mentioned, was a year where the non-U.S. real estate stocks you know, really shown. I mentioned that the Europe was up almost 30%, APAC almost 20%. And I mentioned those numbers again, because part of that was currency. The U.S. dollar has been weakening. So part of that global or international exposure has afforded the opportunity to gain some benefit from that currency movement. And for anyone looking year to date, if I go real time, U.S. REITs have gotten killed. And, and we believe it's way overdone. They're down 9, 10%. You know, where non-U.S. is down half that, and and some markets are even up. The Japanese real real estate stocks are positive year to date. So we believe there's current opportunity right now from this dislocation, especially in the U.S., and that there's opportunity outside the U.S. Last year was the first year in four where the the non-U.S. or international, from the U.S. standpoint, real estate stocks outperformed the U.S. rates. So we believe the pendulum has swung and it's probably going to hang out here for a while with non-U.S. performing well. Of course, by going global, there's natural diversification by being in many different markets, many different property types. There's benefit from some M&A as the private capital in the world. There's about you know an estimated $250 billion with a B dry powder among private equity and other investors on the direct side. So sooner or later, that capital, you know, notices if the listed stocks are, are looking too cheap. And indeed, there's been some M&A both outside the U.S. and in the U.S., particularly, and it's still unfolding, in the retail sector via the Class A malls. A lot of news was coming out late last year. So, there, you know, diversification, a global growth that's increasingly synchronized, access to parts of the world that act differently at different times, we, of course, being in a dynamic uh, fund, can, can allocate capital accordingly to geographies and property types that we believe will outperform uh, in this environment. And Steve, you know, I think it's important that you talked about how the fund can adapt to climate conditions. So for investors that are concerned about that, you know, inflation could begin to pick up from low levels of recent years, what benefits would an allocation to real estate provide in a period of rising inflation? You know, I previously mentioned 
All three speakers today are talking about asset classes that can benefit from inflation. There's the classic argument about whether or not it's good inflation or bad inflation, bad inflation being cost push inflation, good inflation being you know, just a reflection that, that things are, are getting better. And I think we very, very much have have the latter. And like infrastructure, like commodities, you know, real estate clearly benefits from any inflation through the top line by rents going up. Whenever they roll, it depends on the asset class and, and the timing. But, but real estate indeed is an asset class that over time can reflect and benefit any inflationary trends, which to some extent are welcome. You know, we're in a world with liabilities that that are fixed. So if you know, if we've got a little little bit of inflation coming back, that's a good thing, not a bad thing for all types of asset classes, including the listed real estate stocks. And with that in mind, Steve, what advantages could investors see from harnessing a closed end fund for their real estate exposure? Yeah, the closed-end fund has some features that an open-end fund would not have. We use leverage tactically, and in a positive market, you know, that certainly helps. That was true last year. You know, we can toggle it back or toggle it up to not only gain greater capital appreciation, but higher current yield via the dividend. You know, also, we don't have to kind of react to any inflows or outflows into the fund since it is is a closed-end fund. And for an investor looking at at value, I mean, this is classic and is true with a lot of closed-end funds. You know, you get the real estate at a double discount. I mean, the real estate itself is trading at a discount to what we believe it's worth in the private markets. And, you know, we're part of a large private (laughs) real estate firm, so have a very good read on, on what that is. But then there's another discount just reflected in where, you know, where the stock trades in the market. And I know this is true of many closed-end funds. So for an investor who needs kind of a buffer of, of knowing that the value is good, you know, many closed-end funds offer, offer that buffer via a discount to the discount, as I described it. Thanks, Steve. Now, David, how do you see an allocation to the precious metals sector best positioned in an investor's diversified portfolio? More specifically, what purpose does it serve in the portfolio, and how would you underweight or overweight the sector? All right. Thank you. Um, Whereas I think it was Larry that mentioned some low-volatility sectors, gold is certainly not one of them. Gold is a highly volatile sector, and a diversified portfolio such as ASA is perhaps one of the best ways to invest in this sector as it reduces the risks of any single operation not living up to expectations or potential political risk issues negatively affecting your individual mining stocks. We've always been a bit conservative in suggesting asset allocation of the sector to a generalist as a consequence of the sector's volatility. But what traditionally has been useful is gold's low correlation to other asset classes, and as such, it provides a strong diversifier for one's overall portfolio. Think of it as fire insurance, if you will, for one's portfolio. We don't necessarily want to buy our insurance, but at times it's awfully handy. We don't put all of our money into insurance either. We we allocate a certain portion of our investment portfolio for those days when things just don't go right. Now, in recent years, one has not needed that insurance in the gold sector or the insurance that gold provides. But with the markets near all-time highs, interest rates coming off record lows, and sharply increasing volatility, now might be the time to consider reviewing one's portfolio insurance and using something like gold or real estate or hard assets to hedge their overall portfolio position. We believe that for long-term investors, 
an allocation of, say, 4 to 5% of one's broader portfolio is sufficient to provide that reduction in overall portfolio volatility and some form of portfolio insurance with gold. If that 4% allocation later becomes 7 or 8 because the insurance was needed or because of overall market volatility, at that point we would suggest trimming some of one's precious metals exposure. And likewise, if gold begins to underperform and falls to 2%, we'd move it back towards the 4% allocation. So the 4% provides sort of a long-term median, if you will, and we would trim the uh, the peaks in that because gold is performing, or when periods when gold isn't performing, we'd add to those positions, just as you might with one's fire insurance. Thanks, David. And Larry, if we could look at uh, closed-in funds um, from your perspective. Obviously, a lot of investors look to closed-in funds as an attractive income component in the portfolios. So what advantages do the different sectors of real assets have in supporting this attractive cash flow, especially at this stage of the market cycle? This stage of the market cycle seems to be defined by three factors, modestly rising growth, modestly rising inflation, and modestly rising interest rates. Real asset equities should provide attractive income in this environment as corporate earnings grow, allowing for dividend increases. Current yield on natural resource equities, real estate equities, and infrastructure equities are all roughly 4%. In addition, U.S. energy MLP equities offer a yield approaching 8%, which is very attractive. And again, because these are equities, as earnings grow, dividends should increase. Second, turning to real asset high yield, this should also provide attractive income, driven also by that corporate earnings growth. Earnings growth will improve credit quality and reduce default risk of high-yield bonds. Uh, Current yield on high yield is approximately 5.5%. Finally, securitized credit should also provide attractive income. Uh, Current yield here is 5%, but one area that we're particularly focused on is floating rate securities, where the coupon will rise as interest rates rise, providing some protection from rising rates. In addition, In the residential mortgage-backed securities market, we are very positive on the strength of housing fundamentals, which should be very supportive for residential mortgages. And Larry, you also have a unique perspective in that you you follow a broad range of sectors and investments for the portfolios you manage. Could you tell us where you're finding the most interesting opportunities and the best values in the market environment? Sure. I think the single most interesting opportunity is U.S. energy MLP equities. We find them interesting for three reasons. First, these MLPs offer a very attractive yield, approaching 8%, as I just mentioned. Second, MLPs are attractively valued on both an absolute basis relative to historical values and a relative basis relative to broader equities currently. And third, we think that MLPs should continue to benefit from strong fundamentals driven by growing U.S. oil and gas production. So we think these are a very attractive component of a diversified real asset securities portfolio because of their yield, valuation, and strong fundamentals. Well, Larry, David, Steve, I think you've uh, given us and investors specifically a lot to think about today. I think that's all the time we have for today's discussion. But for all those listening in, you can hear more from some of today's speakers next week in New York City at the CIFA Advisor Summit. We encourage you to stay tuned and revisit us for future discussions around closed-end funds. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. 
We hope you will stop by again for news on this ever-changing space. Until next time, connect with us on Twitter at, at CEF Association or by searching for the Closed End Fund Association on LinkedIn and YouTube.